Welcome to Gateway Community Church, Webster, Texas. We're so glad you found us, and we hope this message helps you discover more about God and His unique plan for your life. Well, it's good to see all of you this morning, and uh, praise Him in that song. His is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Yea, God. Uh, before I dive in, we're very um, excited today to introduce someone to you who's just come to join our staff, and um, I, I, I forgot about this at the early service, but um, um, some of our church family first met Juan in 2008 when we sent a mission team to Honduras, and uh, he was there helping with that, and he has been here in Houston a number of times since, and um, uh, just recently some of the paperwork finally cleared up, and Juan, Gail, and his wife Fabiola have come to join us Today, they're here this morning to join us. Would y'all stand to help lead us in? To help lead us as we reach beyond our doors into uh, more and more of the Hispanic community, which is a growing and big part of Houston, to make sure we want to be a church that represents our community, that ministers to the whole community and to all those who are here. I think the greatest testimony to me would always be if our, our, our church looked just like the world around us. If you walked within five miles, you would, you would not see anything different in terms of the, the people and, and the, the wide variety of circumstances that bring them here and, and have them going. So we're excited that they're here, and uh, I know you'll be getting to know him more and seeing him. Some of you have known him for a long time. Uh, but we're, we're really glad to have Juan and Fabiola here. Welcome. Um, we're continuing a series called A Wonderful Life. I want to tell you about a, a, a story about a, a Texas Ranger, tough Texas Ranger back in the 1800s, who was chasing an outlaw, and uh, that was name was Pancho, chased him through the desert, finally caught up with him in a small village, and approached him with both guns drawn because the man had stolen a million dollars from a train. And uh, as he approached, he, he ordered him to turn the money over, but um, the, uh, a young man behind the counter, behind the bar, came out and said, Sir, uh, he doesn't speak English. I'm his translator. And so the, the ranger said to him, Well, tell him, I have come to reclaim the million dollars he stole from the train. If he doesn't hand it over, I'm going to fill him full of lead. And so very quickly, the uh, interpreter proceeds to tell Pancho all these things that, that he has said. At least that's what he thinks. And Pancho very quickly responds to the interpreter. will tell him the money's two miles outside of town, buried 30 paces east of an old abandoned well. And so as the interpreter finishes getting that, he turns to the ranger who's got his guns drawn and he says to him, uh, Sir, Pancho says he's, he's not telling, go ahead and shoot. <laughs> you know, I, I guess people will do strange, e even tragic things for money. Even though we're the, the richest nation in the world, most of us have more than over 90% of the, the world's population. The truth is most of us would say we don't feel rich. Instead, as we talked about last week, we have an inclination inside of us to, to tend to focus on, on what we don't have and what, what others do have, to see what we're missing, to see 
what more there is, versus looking at, at how blessed we really are, how much we have, how wondrous and full our life really is. And that's because the more we have, the, the, the tendency is for it to affect us, leading often to faulty thinking so that we become increasingly focused on what we don't have, which seems like it would be very strange. You have more, you would be grateful, but, and it's not true with all, but it certainly is with some. This, and this bent for more leaves us feeling like the answer is going to come with the next raise or with, with that inheritance that we're waiting on or winning the lottery. Several years ago, I, I came across this survey, and it has always intrigued me. A, a group of people were asked, how much more money would they feel like they needed to have in order to feel like they had arrived, that they were comfortable, that they could manage? And the average answer was about $10,000. Well, several years later, the people who did the survey went back to the same individuals and asked them, first surveyed them about their financial status. And what they discovered was uh, unbeknownst to those who were surveyed, is that really and truly they were all on average making about 10,000 more than they had been in the first time of the survey. But they asked them the exact same question. How much more would you need in order to feel like you had arrived, that you had what you needed? And the average answer was $10,000. Still. It seems like there's there's just that little bit more, that one more hill, that one more hurdle, that one more raise, whatever it is, that one more job that will get us over the hurdle and we'll finally have arrived. But we never do. What's more, surveys have shown that uh, the truth is those who are what we would most of us consider to be wealthy here in America, the survey said they're no happier than the rest of us. In fact, those who've won big lotteries, you, you hear about them every once in a while on TV, on average, after five years, they will tell you that they are less happy than from before they won the lottery, and many of them, in fact, wish they would have never won it at all. Now, that, some of us think, well, I know that wouldn't be my problem. I would figure it out. I would, I would make it work. But it, it's striking to see the, the facts. Um, would we, or is this in fact this idea that money's, more money is the answer to some of our problems, is it real or is it in fact faulty thinking? That we kind of missed the point. We've bought into something that our, our culture tells us matters, that is important, and maybe it doesn't. Jesus said, beware, guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. Now, please understand, the Bible is not saying here that wealth is bad or wealth is wrong. Not at all. That's, that's not at all the point here. But when money and things become the focus of our lives, when they become the thing that we desire and look to, when we search for that in order to help us through something or to get over something or to, to manage something, we're going down a very dangerous, even destructive path. Paul wrote to Timothy, people who long to be rich fall into temptation. And are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many crowns. God understands the danger of this for so many of us in ways that, that sometimes go right over the top with us. And it's why in the Bible there are, there are more than 500 verses about prayer. There are more than 500 verses about faith, but there are more than 2,000 verses on the subject of money and possessions. 
Why would that be? Unless God understands that we have a, an inclination within us to use it to distract us from what really matters. Jesus talked about money in 16 of his 38 parables, nearly half. I mean, this is real life. This is not stuff out there. This is not nebulous. This is not super high theology. This is, if we're honest, at times things that, that all of us struggle with and can easily distract us from God's best. God understands that, that one of the biggest threats to experience his best for our lives is focusing on wealth and on things and stuff. Like that, that will somehow solve my problems, somehow make me feel good about myself, somehow be like, I, I'm okay. As we saw last week, Paul wrote to Timothy, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. God is telling us, uh, uh, among many things here, that being generous, and, and when I say generous, I'm not just talking about finances. I'm talking about generous with our time, generous with our resources, generous with, with our families, generous with our words, generous even with our faith, that when we are generous with those things, it is a powerful antidote to a life that has been swayed, a life that has drifted, a life that, is mis life that has mistakenly pursued wealth and riches as somehow the answer for us. We've been convinced by our culture that wealth here on earth, that it holds the answers to life's problems. But again, we've been deceived by the enemy. Those who, who actually experience the best in life live lives that, that reflect God's design and his desire for our lives, that strive to live as Jesus lived, who lived generously. In fact, Jesus said, give and you will receive. Your gift will return to you in full, pressed down, shaken together to make room for more, running over and poured into your lap. The amount you give will determine the amount you get back. Generosity in, in all of its permutations, in all the areas of our lives, as, as we will see in coming weeks, I mean, we're not focusing on finances in this whole series. In fact, this is the only week. Generosity is just part of God's nature. And therefore, it's his desire for you and me. Because you see, Jesus said, God so loved the world that he, what? Gave. Say that with me. He gave. That's right. He gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. It is God's nature to give. And God in his nature, has given us everything there is, including creation, I mean, all that we see around us, including redemption from sin, including for those who accept Christ into their lives, eternity. And Genesis tells us something really important, that you and I have been created in God's own image, that we are created to reflect his character in the first chapter Verse 27, so God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. 
We are created in God's image. And in fact, you look at Scripture, you look all through that first chapter as things are being created. There is nothing else for which God says, I will create you in my own image. They're created, they're good, but nothing else is created in God's own image to to somehow reflect God in our very being. And unfortunately, though, sin enters the picture, distorts life and how we see it, including our design to be generous, so that our natural tendency increasingly becomes to, to grasp and hold in order to store earthly treasure versus open our hands and give to store heavenly treasure. God created us to be givers, to be generous. So we do that because he himself is a giver who is generous. And and when we aren't, then somehow we're succumbing to sin in our lives, into into this faulty thinking that's risen up in our culture that says, look out for number one at all costs. Instead, much of the teachings of Jesus were designed to, to counter this lifestyle. Jesus said, don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will be also. Jesus here is warning us that storing up treasure here on earth is going to be fraught with all kinds of dangers and disappointments. We think that's the answer. We think if I just had more, everything would be okay. But the truth is he's actually, in these verses, he's giving us a prescription for living generously, especially when we don't feel like it. And and all of us find ourselves in situations, whether funds are running low, whether circumstances, whatever it may be, when it doesn't feel good, it doesn't feel like something I want to do. Giving goes against my inclinations, and yet Jesus tells us that our hearts often follow our actions, not the other way around. We often think that Our actions follow our heart. But Jesus is telling us, focus on our actions. He says, if we want to be generous, we have to start acting generous before we feel generous. Even, in fact, before we desire to be generous. And in doing that, those actions then begin to lead and transform and change our hearts. We focus our activities on getting more. That tends to lead to what we want, more. I want more. And that's where our heart goes. And that's probably where most people in our country today are. But focus our activities on giving. On, on making a difference with our lives, with our treasure, with our time, our talent, with all those things. And our hearts will gravitate to generosity and away from corrupting influences all around us. This is not just about money. It's about our time. It's about our talent. It's about all that we are and all that we have. But the key thing here to realize is it is a choice that we're called to make. It requires faith that that Jesus really does know what he's talking about and is teaching us because it is countercultural. But he's pointing us to this. This is really important. 
You want something to change? You want to grow your faith? Give. Because where your treasure is, your heart will follow. Give. And your heart will begin to be transformed by that. If you wait till you feel like it, if you and I wait till we feel like it, virtually nothing happens. Most of us, most of the time, don't feel it. And, and yet we live in a culture that is so, puts so much emphasis on feelings, and we end up putting ourselves at risk of just focusing on me and what I want, and I don't have enough, and it's not good enough. And I'm never happy and I'm never satisfied. And there's never enough. And that approach is rampant in our world. But when we start giving, it's infectious. It's exciting. It, it, it's rewarding to see how God is using us to make a difference and change other lives versus focusing on me and all my needs and, and, and my concerns exclusively. Some of you may not realize this, but um, my belly button is an innie. Okay, just confession time. Doesn't stick out. It's not, it's not smooth. It kind of drops. In fact, it's kind of deep. You know, and I can remember a time when I was less conscious or less, um, I was more willing to go go out swimming and, and all that kind of stuff and out in the public and, you know, I'd start thinking, you know, they're going to look at my belly button and it's, it's really deep. You know, it's weird. I mean, couldn't the doctor have not tied it off so tight? I mean, I don't know how this works, but I think, you know, it's, they just over, they, they, they over torqued it or something. I don't know. I mean, I don't know if you had that problem. Maybe, you're, maybe yours is smooth. Maybe you got an Audi, you know? Um, but, but here's the thing. You really don't care. It's just me. It's up here. And, and if I get away from that and I focus on other things and on my life and having fun, nobody even notices. I'm the only one that sees it. And, and, and the same thing is true in so many areas of our lives. We get caught up in what we think matters and what is important to us, what we have, what we don't have, and we look around and we think we're missing out on everything, and instead we've been focused on a belly button, for heaven's sake. And it's about as important. God, God is calling us to turn our eyes away from ourselves, turn our eyes from what we don't have, turn our eyes from what others do have, instead look at what we do have and how we can use it and, and, and glorify God with it and, and make a difference in other people's lives. So how are we to be generous? How are we to be generous with all the treasures, the talent, the time that God has given us? The Apostle Paul talks a great deal about generosity. 
in many of his writings, and particularly, particularly in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, a great section. I'm going to only look at just a portion of chapter 9 this morning, but I want to invite you, if you have your Bibles, to go ahead and turn there, or if you have your mobile device and you have the YouVersion Bible app, go to the live page, or if you have neither of those, we have the notes in your, in your bulletin, and near the bottom it says, what can we learn about generosity from 2 Corinthians? And we're going to dive in there, starting in verse 6. Here it says in verse 6, remember this, a farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop, but the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. First thing you and I need to notice is generosity, Jesus, uh, Paul says, begets generosity. We reap what we sow. And that doesn't mean that if I give financially to my church or to the needs of others that somehow magically my finances are going to multiply, that my checkbook is going to, going to have extra money in it that I don't even know how it got there. But what it does mean is that blessings flow from giving, while frustrations will often flow from being stingy. People who live generous lifestyles are generally happier, more pleasant to be with. Verse 7 says, you must each decide in your heart how much to give, and don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure, for God loves a person who gives cheerfully. See, God looks at the reasons we give even more than he looks at what we give or how much we give. We think of it that those are the most important things, and he is looking at the heart of it. Proverbs 16 says, people may be pure in their own eyes, but the Lord examines their motives. You see, sometimes this is what makes the Christian lifestyle style so challenging. It's never simply about obeying rules. Now, the world around us wants to say that Christianity is about morality, about doing good, and whether my, my, my good is outweighing my bad. But you don't find that in the directives of Scripture. Instead, it is about God transforming our hearts so that our, our, our desires and our motives reflect His in whose image we are created. If we're giving because we want to gain something in return, if, if we want to somehow manipulate God or manipulate others, look what I did, look how good I did, God sees through that. It doesn't fool him for a moment. But if we're giving because we are trusting God, perhaps even to change our hearts through giving, he honors that intent as well, even if we aren't fully feeling it yet. And it's at this point that we often see God do amazing things that we didn't even anticipate that he would do. And as Jesus says, our hearts then ultimately follow our treasure. So the time does come when giving him becomes a joy and a pleasure for us. I will, there is nothing more fun to me than giving. And there are a lot of folks here in this congregation who can attest to that being true. Many of you, that is your lifestyle. Many of you, that is how you live. Many of you, that is something you enjoy doing. And, and I know that for those that do that, you don't give reluctantly, you don't give out of pressure or guilt. Believe me, there is nothing in this that, that lines up with guilt whatsoever, but because it is the desire and the joy of your heart, and you feel blessed, but you can give, as Brandon mentioned earlier. Verse 8 goes on, God will generously provide all you need, then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. Living generously honors God and enables him to bless us with all that we need. And, and again, this, is, this idea isn't limited to our financial treasures, but every area of our lives. And yet the key to understanding this, to understanding God's ways, is to see that he's not talking about our, our wants, but our needs. And in this day, in this culture, we've increasingly redefined what once would have been wants into needs. 
And sometimes we got to step back and we got to take a look at that. Too often we confuse them so that we overlook how he is, in fact, generously providing our needs. Verse 9 says, as the scriptures say, they share freely and give generously to the poor. Their good needs will be remembered forever. Paul here is quoting Psalm 112 to, to point that this is not something that just popped up with Jesus and from his time forward, that this has always been the case. Then, now, that generosity has always been a blessing to others, but also blesses the giver. And not just in this life, but maybe even more so in the life to come. Verse 10, for God is the one who provides seed for the farmer and then bread to eat. In the same way, he will provide and increase your resources and then produce a great harvest of generosity in you. To me, in this verse is perhaps one of the most foundational understandings of the Christian life that so many overlook. Everything we have, everything we have received, everything that is in our grasp, everything about us, is, including life itself, is a gift from God. Everything. Going all the way back to the beginning in Genesis 1, we see that creation itself is only the result of God. If God didn't want to create, if God didn't want us to be here, we wouldn't be here. Life wouldn't exist. This universe wouldn't have come into being. Psalm 24 says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all its people belong to him. I think about my 2010 Tahoe that I get to drive. Uh, It was made in a factory up in Arlington. But here's the thing, all the metal was dug out of the earth, which God created. The leather seats came from cows, which God created. The plastic came from oil, which came from plants and microorganisms that died long ago, that God created. The people who designed it, the people who built the factory for it, the people who built it, the people who sold it, the people who transported it, all of those things, they came from their parents, who came from their parents, who came from their parents, until you get all the way back to God creating man and woman. God created everything related to my Tahoe. But it's mine, right? Because I paid for it. Right? That's what we say. It's mine. Mine, mine, mine. Remember that from Nemo, Finding Nemo? Mine, mine. It's already four years old or a little more than that. And at some point in the next few years, it's going to stop working. I'm going to drive it until it does, you know. But it's going to stop, and somebody's going to haul it off to a salvage yard, and they're going to take the metal out, and they're going to take parts out of it. But eventually, a a 1,000 or 10,000 or 100,000 years from now, the metal's going to rust and corrode and return to dust, to the earth from which it came, from the God who created everything about my car, my car, and who even created within me the ability to work in order that I could purchase it. I mean, if you think about it, in the big picture, all I'm really doing is renting, for a period of time, some of God's matter, configured into that of a 2010 Tahoe, with resources that God first gave me to begin with. Paul said to the Corinthians in an earlier letter, he said, what do you have that God hasn't given you? And if everything you have is from God, why boast as though it were not a gift? See, the biblical view of our existence is that everything has been created by God. Everything. 
And he is still creating as new ideas unfold in our world through the minds of us whom God has created, and new life continues to be created and born into this world. And because God created it all, God owns it all, he's the owner. He's the one with the rights. He's the one that, that has the final say. We're the renters. We're the managers. We're the caretakers, or the, the word the Bible uses, we're the stewards, because we don't own it. God has simply given us responsibility for it for a period of time. Guys, that's not just my Tahoe. Ultimately, that is even my life. I am a steward of my life. It has been entrusted to me. God didn't have to create me. God chose to. My life is a gift. And how I use it says more about my faith and my belief than anything else. A steward is one who manages the property of another. That's simple. Acts on their behalf. A good steward, a good manager, always tries to keep the owner's interests in mind. So stewardship, which is a word many of you have heard and you, you dread and you, you shut down, stewardship is simply the process of managing that which belongs to another. All my wealth, all my possessions, my life, my time, my skills, my talents, all of those are gifts from God given to me to be managed by me in ways that bring honor and glory to him, that align with his purposes. That's what happens if I'm a good steward. Conversely, it's the height of hubris, it's the height of arrogance to claim that somehow I am ultimately responsible for all that I have because apart from God, there's nothing, nothing. That's why it's so cool. God is generous. God is so generous. It's his nature, remember, to give. And so he loves to give just as, don't we parents love to give to our kids? Isn't that one of the coolest things we get to do when we get to truly give something to our children or to a friend that they really want? There's nothing that makes us feel better. And in those moments, we understand that. But most of the time, we get caught up in, in wrong thinking. God is generous to us so that we can be generous. Verse 11 says, yes, you will be enriched in every way so that you can always be generous. And when we take your gifts to those who need them, they will thank God. Or I love the way the New English Bible translation puts the very first part of it. You will always be rich enough to be generous. Listen, you will always be rich enough to be generous. And that generosity has results, Paul says. And, and God has given us enough to be generous in some way if we're looking at life that way. We can be generous with our time. We can be generous with our talents. And yet that doesn't leave us off the hook for also being generous with our treasure. If we aren't being generous with our treasure, then we're planting only a few seeds and we will reap only a small harvest, a small crop, because generosity begets generosity. It changes our lives. It changes our lifestyle. And that generosity does have results, Paul says in verse 14 and after he says, so two good things will result from this ministry of giving. The needs of the believers in Jerusalem will be met and they will joyfully express their thanks to God. 
As a result of your ministry, they will give glory to God for your generosity to them and to all believers will prove that you're obedient to the good news of Christ. And they will pray for you with deep affection because of the overflowing grace God has given to you. Paul says generosity is a way of meeting needs. Certainly physical needs, because Paul here was talking specifically about taking up an offering from the ch- church at Corinth and from other churches to take to the church in Jerusalem, the, the first church, if you will, first church. Um, because at this point, the Jews and the Romans were increasingly persecuting the Christians. They weren't able to work. They weren't able to have incomes. And so the rest of the church was coming together to provide for them. And they were, they were gladly taking up the offering. And especially chapter 8 talks about that offering. But it also meets spiritual needs because it expands the reach of the gospel. Then as well as today. Today we can say nine months into this year, we've already, this church has already baptized over 150 individuals. 150 lives who have committed their lives to Jesus Christ. That is a spiritual need, a spiritual investment. Generosity provides resources to reach and transform the world around us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet at the same time, Paul says, generosity is a witness to the goodness and grace of God that demonstrates our faith in Him and it draws others to Him. Because generosity surprises people. When you and I give, nobody expects it. When we give out of the goodness of our heart, when you give to somebody who's hurting in your neighborhood, someone at work who's struggling, some, something through the church, when you do something extravagant, something nice, something kind, people look at you. They think you're crazy. They think you, you, there's something in it for you. They are surprised when it is done simply out of the goodness of our heart. And they start asking questions. Why did he do that? Why did she give me that? Why are they doing that? And we have the opportunity then to point people to God, the source of all that there is, the giver of every good and perfect gift. Our generosity is a tool for evangelism, not just in the resources it provides to do that, but also in the very act of selfless generosity that blows people away. Why would anybody do that? Why would anybody give? Why would anybody care about me? Why would anybody care about this cause? It causes people to question because you are going against the grain. You are countercultural. Our generosity is a tool. Juan and Fabiola are a part of how your generosity will enable us to go beyond our walls, to reach more of our community, to touch people's lives who maybe no one has. And so when we give, it's an investment. It's something that turns itself over time and time again. And with all this in mind, Paul really can't, can't contain himself. I mean, he gets so excited, he says in verse 15, thank God for this gift too wonderful for words, exclamation point. He is so pumped up about this, that God is gracious, God is generous, and and so that there are no words, there's no quantity of words that he can pull together that adequately, adequately explains his joy and the wonder he feels of a God who loves him so much, so dramatically, so fantastically, so completely, that he would even give his son for us. So how generous or we, we as a church, there are a lot of generous people in here, but how generous am I or you personally 
individually. And again, we're talking this today about finances, but in, in the future weeks, we're going to be talking about a lot of other areas in which money is not even a major factor. Am I generous? Or has money gotten a hold of me? Has, has God ordained over 2,000 verses in the Bible about money and possessions because, in fact, I'm one of the ones that, in fact, struggles at that very point of putting too much emphasis on it in my life. It's, it's interesting to see. We have a slide of, of people here in our church that, that give, and this is, since the first of the year, we've had 822 households to give. Uh, and households, maybe one person, maybe 10 people. We're not distinguishing there. And, and you'll notice that over here, if you can see these numbers, from one cent to $4.99 a week, there are 257 that that's what they've given so far this year in the first nine months. It's, it's averaged somewhere between one cent and $4.99. It goes up from 5 to 9.99, 10, 15 to 19, 20 to 29, 30 to 39, so on and so forth, 200 to 249, 250 plus. There are 32 families in our church that so far in the first nine months have given 250 or more a week to make happen what God is doing here. But, but there's a second slide to this that is a little more revealing. And that is that while there are 822 families that have given, there's 616 that we have no record of any giving. Look at that, over 1,400, 40% or so, not, not a thing. It's not to say they don't give or give somewhere. But there's no investment in what God is doing here. And, and so... I start looking at this, and, and the challenge, it seems to me, is, is to consider, is there something more I could do? Could I demonstrate? Could I allow my, my resources to follow my heart? Can I give so that my heart will follow my resources? Can I take a step? Can I go just from $5 to $10? You know, the interesting thing is, I, I, again, I did a little bit of math, and if 500 families just gave $10 more a week, $10, I mean, that's, that's a little bit more than a McDonald's meal for one person, okay? That would, that would add $260,000 to ministry in this church. 260000 If just 500 out of nearly 1500 you know, we're, we're tempted to think that what I have has doesn't matter, that my time doesn't matter, somebody else is going to serve, my giving doesn't matter, somebody else is going to give. I can't give very much. It, it won't make much of a difference. But here's the thing. Your giving alongside somebody else can make huge differences. It's important when it's, we understand it as a community and not simply as what I can do, but what I can do alongside others what we can do. And, and that's why the body of Christ is so important. It's a community. And it's not judging people by where they are, but whether they are. It's looking at the heart and the intention. That's why Jesus said, look at the woman who gave two copper coins. It was the least of anybody could give. And yet he pointed that out more than he pointed out people who gave tons of money. Why? Because it was about the heart. It was about the, the intentionality. And if we want to see our lives change, if we want to grow spiritually, believe it or not, if you want to grow spiritually, you start giving. 
Because where your treasure is, your heart will be. It will transform your heart. If you want to grow spiritually, you serve. Because where your treasure is, where you give your time, your heart will follow. Your heart can get stuck, and and for many of us it has. But God is calling us to so much more. See, it's easy for somebody to think, well, all they're talking about is all they want is my money. Heck, if you don't want to give a dime to this church, but you want to give, I will applaud that. Because the point here is your soul, your life, your growth, your intentionality to become more and more like Jesus. And that doesn't just happen. It doesn't happen because I sit around and I have good intentions. It happens because I do something. I start. I invest my time, my talent, my treasure. Because where my treasure is, my heart is going to follow. And so you have the opportunity to do that. And, and for some of you, just taking one step from one step to the next could be a big deal. But for some of you, you need to, you, you really, you need to go further than that. You need to consider the tithe. Brandon talked about them. My family has tithed from, the, from as long as I can remember and more. And is it convenient? No. But God calls us to this. And in fact, he knows it is such a struggle to us that in other places in the Bible, God says, do not test me. But in Malachi chapter 3, the last book of the Old Testament, he says, okay, in this one thing, in your giving, in your tithes and offerings, you can test me. And so we believe what God says. In fact, we act on that as a church. And so we offer to you what we call the 90-day giving tithe challenge. Um, you can find out about it on our, our webpage, gateway-community.org, if you're interested. And here's what we do. We say, you sign up, you tell us you're going to do this, and that's confidential between you and our financial person. And after 90 days, if you don't feel like God has used it in your life, I don't, I don't mean at the end of 90 days your bank account is better off than it was. But somehow God has blessed you in that. If that hasn't happened, we'll give you all of the money back. All of it. Why? Because God says you can test him on this. And if he says it, we're going to align our policies with what God says. And if he says you can test him, we're going to help you to do that. If you need to do that, do that. If you don't need to do it, that's fine. But he wouldn't ask you and I to do something like that unless it mattered. And again, the culture, the world around us says it's all about me and my stuff. And God says, I love this, the world so much that I gave. And I challenge you to give because I created you in my image. And I gave you life and existence, and gifts, and talents, and resources for you to give to others. And when you do, I can work in your life. I can make a difference. If you don't, not much I can do. When you do, there's so much I can do. So we give you that opportunity. I put in my blog, which at the back of this page, this insert near the bottom is the web address, some more biblical reasons for giving. If you want to just dig into that some more, it's there for you. You can give electronically through our website or whatever. 
You can give through other means in other settings. But here's, here's where I end. Something that one of us said, Winston Churchill said, we make a living through what we get. We make a life through what we give. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just pray today that you would help us to be increasingly transformed in the image and likeness of Jesus. Jesus who gave. Jesus who, who did not think equality with you was something to be grasped and emptied himself to become flesh and blood like us. Who gave his life for us on the cross. That's the model you give us. Because that's what you gave us. That's the heart and soul that you made us to live. And yet we see a world around us that beats with a totally different heart. And it's mesmerizing. And it draws us in. And we, we think somehow we just haven't gotten enough. We haven't gone far enough. We haven't tried hard enough. That there's always something more. Father, help us to see that that, that more is endless. There's always more. And if I'm always looking ahead, I will never appreciate and enjoy here and now. What I have, this moment I'm in, the family I have, the people around me, the work I get to do, the life you have given me, the talents and abilities that I have. Father, help us to set that aside. Help us to put our treasure where it needs to be. Help us to be obedient so that our heart will follow, so that we do feel it. That is a wonderful gift, but we don't become dependent on what we feel. We trust you. Help us to do that, we pray, Father, in the name of Jesus. Amen. To learn more about us, visit www.gateway-community.org. Welcome to your journey.